Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Coco Abobloir, a head of economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2050 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. I hope that you managed to squeeze in a holiday this summer. In France, the month of August is basically a national holiday. By solidarity, I had to comply with the tradition and was quite busy testing out the demand satiety principle that we discussed in the inflation episode. I confess, I did not make it to 50 pina coladas. But back to reality. It appears that we have won the war against COVID-19. England ended most of its mandatory social distancing rules back in July 19th, right before the summer holiday month of August. This Freedom Day was a sort of second UK Independence Day. The last one was, hmm, Brexit? Or maybe the Bastille Day equivalent, where we finally overcame the tyranny and oppression of COVID-19, the crown virus. Which is literally the translation of coronavirus, by the way. Hmm. I can sense some hesitation and uneasiness. And indeed, we still have the Delta variant spreading among unvaccinated people, and in some cases, vaccinated and partially vaccinated people, thankfully with a much lower mortality rate. The rest of the world is far from achieving herd immunity. There is even talk of vaccine efficacy starting to wane. Wearing a mask has indeed become part of our daily routine for over a year now. It's even a sign of mutual respect. This uneasiness could last longer than we think and could become a symptom of psychological long COVID. Much digital ink has been spilled over what consequences the COVID-19 pandemic was likely to have on society, and especially the collateral damage future generations may have to bear. What part of these known and unknown consequences are likely to be transitory versus long-lasting? or even permanent. These societal scars of COVID-19 and their long-term effects on you and the economy is today's topic du jour. As a disclaimer, we'll focus a bit more on human psychology and the you in this episode. Why? Because markets and the economy are not always driven by theoretical concepts, econometric models, and mathematical formulas. Human emotions such as fear and greed, confidence or despair, play a significant role. This is one of the reasons why behavioral finance has become so popular. So, let's start our investigation. Let's first search social consequences of COVID-19 on Yahoo. Nothing personal against Google, by the way. It's just business 101. Never get all your information from the same source. Unsurprisingly, you see a plethora of articles, newspapers, academic research papers, and so forth. To be thorough, let me read all of the 71,600,000 hits out loud, one by one. Are you ready? Let's start. Just kidding. Wow. What a volcanic eruption of silence to this joke. I was uh, once told that when you become a manager... It is usually the last day you really know whether your jokes are funny or not. (laughs) Back 
to ask cars. And in my infinite kindness, let me summarize my findings in four main points. Point one. The most obvious long-term physical scars are well documented. Loss of smell, loss of taste, tiredness, headaches, allergic reactions. But some studies have even uncovered other less known effects of long COVID, such as heart conditions, neurological issues, etc. Most of these consequences are more likely transitory, though. Point two. The psychological scars, the trauma of having lost relatives, of having lost loved ones over a short period of time without an opportunity to properly grieve. One can also think about the social phobia, fear of others or crowds, aka agoraphobia. This can also lead to lower risk appetite and entrepreneurial spirit. Lower mental well-being is one of the most common scars. Several months of lockdowns and quarantines have indeed taken their toll on many of us, triggering bouts of depression and lower self-esteem. This reminds me of French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre and his play Reclos or No Exit. He mentioned the famous and often misunderstood quote, "L'enfer c'est les autres," hell is other. By this, he did not mean that other people are the worst and that you should run away from them, but rather. He more subtly meant, and I'm quoting here, when we think about ourselves, when we try to know ourselves, we use the knowledge of us which other people already have. We judge ourselves with the means other people have and have given us for judging ourselves. This effect is potentially the most long-lasting one, and the one with the most important consequences for the broader economy. Point three: changes to our relationship to work, the breach of the physical and emotional boundaries between work. And home, the pressure of childcare, homeschooling. Some companies are asking their staff to come back full time. Others are more flexible. The key question here is whether or not we are going from being confined at home to the feeling of being confined at work. Another potentially long-lasting and transformative legacy of COVID-19. But more on this topic later with our special guest. And finally, point four. Which is probably the most important and permanent one. It is the worsening social inequalities across the world, in terms of access to education, work, income, or even vaccine. It is about the sustainability of the social fabric of communities and support systems within most countries. The National Bureau of Economic Research put out a very interesting research paper called "Scarring Body and Mind: The Long-Term Belief Scarring Effects of COVID-19." This research paper talks about the change in the perceived probability of an extreme negative shock in the future, a shock which could in turn have an impact on economic output via the channel of marginal propensity to consume and the level of happiness. As discussed in the Roaring 2020s episode. A vibrant and healthy economy relies on animal spirits, risk-taking, self-confidence, and entrepreneurship. It also requires low wealth inequality. That's because the more unequal a society is, the lower potential growth is, and the higher social tensions become. This is simply because higher-income households spend less of their disposable income and save more, while their lower-income peers spend a higher proportion of their income. Which is more stimulative for the economy. French economist Thomas Piketty from the Paris School of Economics wrote an interesting book called Capital in the 21st Century. I have it somewhere here on my bookshelf.
It shows that the power of compounding returns on capital was much greater than income growth from labor, and this explains the massive rise in inequality over the past decades. According to Credit Suisse's Global Wealth Report, the world's richest 1% own 43.4% of the world's wealth. According to Oxfam, in 2009, the combined wealth of the world's richest 380 people equaled the wealth of the bottom half. And nine years later, in 2018, just 26 billionaires had as much as the bottom 50%. This has gotten even worse during the pandemic in 2020. Data released by the Federal Reserve in Q3 2020 shows that the top 1% of Americans held a staggering 16 times more wealth than the bottom 50%. No wonder Einstein said, Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't, pays it. Okay, so to recap, emotional scars, a new relationship to work, and inequalities have the potential to change you and thus the economy. The big question now is, how many of these scars are transitory and how many are permanent? And what can we do about it? Let's consider the positive side of societal self-cure via entertainment and the key benefits of turning back the page of COVID-19. Legendary Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, man by nature is a social animal. Humans cannot live alone. We must therefore talk about football and our ingrained need for entertainment. Why football? Because in England, we literally had more than 60,000 people in Wembley Stadium, unheard of since the start of COVID-19. This was the ultimate collective mass healing experience, a big step towards getting our lives back. England lost the final of the Euro. And let me tell you, here in London, at least until the penalty shootout, the excitement was electric. For Italy, this victory came at the end of a series of doubts, uncertainty and nail-biting moments. This audacity of hope reached its peak with a national celebration, or rather a national healing after the trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic. For England, however, the country went through its five stages of grief. That is, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. While most have shown their gratitude to what was achieved by these champions, it is still appalling to see that some continued to be victims of racial abuse. Let's remember the words of James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I'm always amazed to see and witness the power that football can have on a nation. It really can bring the best and the worst out of people. I still remember the national euphoria when France won the 1998 World Cup. It coincided with my successful passing of the competitive exam to enter the French business school HEC. We all sang, we are the champions, my friends. Such sporting events also boost consumption, which benefits the overall economy. In France, for instance, preparations for the 1998 World Cup involved several multi-billion euro infrastructure projects. Okay, so one way to heal from the psychological scars of COVID is through collective experiences. The other way is through individual resilience and the desire to succeed. Think about that key exams you had to take, that next interview for that dream job, or that important product pitch in front of a management board, or getting that venture capital financing for your startup. Going beyond our limits, making new discoveries, beating an Olympic world record, yearning for that dream to explore space, 
it is all part of that also important human trait that has inspired generations and fuels economic progress. Muhammad Ali summed it up nicely. Don't limit your challenges. Challenge your limits. Think about Richard Branson's extraordinary achievement this past July. Aboard his Virgin Galactic spacecraft, he reached the edge of space after climbing at three times the speed of sound. This project cost him about a billion dollars of his fortune. I'm sure you would agree. It was one not-so-small stash of cash and one giant leap for, hmm, the space travel industry. Okay, all of this makes sense. This was short and medium-term, though. But what about the long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic? Can they distort this drive for success of the younger part of the population, our kids and teenagers? Are they going to suffer from long-lasting post-traumatic stress disorder, which might affect risk-taking, spending patterns, and the ability to seize the moment, carpe diem? I don't think so. I mean, I hope not. And here's why. Humans cannot stand still. Entertainment is a profound or even primal need for humans. Think about your kids. That's probably why we spend decades in the education system to learn how to control ourselves, to learn how to stay still. Roman dictators and then emperors, such as Julius Caesar, Commodus and Caligula, understood the power of gladiatorial games. Who does not remember the famous quote by Roman poet Juvenal, Panem et Circenses, bread and games. Give the crowd bread and games to control them. I guess the modern-day equivalent of Panem et Circenses might be Deliveroo and Netflix. French philosopher Blaise Pascal was spot on when he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. We need to be entertained. Daddy! Daddy! I want a puppy right now! Sounds familiar? I'm hungry! That was part of my lockdown soundtrack. Another very pertinent quote by Blaise Pascal is, Distraction is the only thing that consoles us for our miseries, and yet it is itself the greatest of our miseries. This reminds me of a specific section of the book Freakonomics, which says that one of the key factors that determines whether a child will succeed in life is simply linked to whether his parents read him or her bedtime stories. The power of imagination, of dreams, and of storytelling. Hmm, that is what podcasts and even research is about. Storytelling and brainstorming. Not surprising then for Einstein to say, imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. To put it differently, logic will get you from A to B. Imagination will take you everywhere. This very profound need to be entertained is the reason behind the amazing performance of internet-related stocks, online gaming, online shopping, etc. for the past decade. It is why US equities, led by the FANG stocks, have done so well before, during, and even after lockdowns. FANG stocks is a term that groups Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Alphabet stocks. 
Together, they are worth a staggering $3 trillion, or 15% of the entire U.S. equity market. Think about this. Why are these companies worth trillions in market cap? If you get something for free, it usually means that you are the product. Remember the movie Matrix, where humans are harvested for the electricity their body generates by putting them in a virtual reality world from birth? Food for thought. This whole analysis was well explained in Jeff Olosky's documentary, The Social Dilemma. The value of personal data for more targeted advertising via the use of artificial intelligence has become one of the most valuable assets. The most valuable companies in the world are linked to entertainment. Some more food for thought. Now, let's shift gear to talk about work-life balance and the return to the office. What will be transitory and what will be permanent changes? And who better to ask than Frédéric Udea, Chief Executive Officer of Société Générale? Hello, Frédéric. Thank you so much for taking the time and share some of your thoughts and insights on this very profound topic of COVID and the societal impact. Hello, Coco. It's a pleasure. Let's kick off. How did COVID-19 disrupt your routine as a CEO? Well, uh, like many people, uh, a lot of changes and disruption. No more traveling, for example, which was, of course, a big part of the agenda. No more meetings, just uh, sometimes videos for interaction with our teams. A huge commitment to deal with uh, the brutal change of uh, the way of working. And of course, I had to ensure the organization would function uh, as a whole. And of course, I become like many people, uh, a better expert in uh, video systems uh, of all kinds. A big change, but we had to adapt and there was no choice. So Frederick, is this new setup transitory or permanent? What is your take on the future of work? Coco, before perhaps speaking specifically about future of work, let me just say first that I don't think we are going to turn the page like this of such a crisis and come back to the, the world before. It is an extraordinary crisis. We had uh, constraints. We have seen a, a strong involvement of governments, uh, an impact on public debt. All in all, there will be uh, long-term consequences on our countries but also on individual trajectories. We saw people also reflecting on their own trajectories and making certain individual choices. Regarding more specifically the way companies will adapt the way they function and uh, how to, to organize uh, the work of uh, the staff, I think here it's structural. I think people have seen the benefits, probably not of a systematic and imposed working from home, which is not the right way of thinking, but of a more balanced way of working uh, in a company with moments at home or without being in present in the office, wherever you are. And again, of course, moments that you will still spend with your colleagues for innovation, for working together, for convivial moments that you cannot have with uh, just videos. And again, which will further nurture the feeling of belonging to a community, belonging to a group, belonging to a company. So uh, it's certainly at least the way we want to go forward on our side. I think it can help to attract talents, in particular the young generations who are expecting something like this, and uh, also retain talents. And I think it's here to stay. And I think you can organize that with also benefits for the company in terms of uh, productivity on one hand, and again, uh, 
a feel-good sentiment for your staff. And so I think here it's structural and not just transitory. So you are in charge of a 150-year-old institution. It survived world wars uh, and now a second pandemic. What are for you the key ingredients for companies to stand the test of time? Well, what strikes me is that in the last 15 years, we've experienced probably two of the major crises of modern history. The financial crisis with a strong impact uh, on the economies, on jobs, and of course on the financial sector with uh, some aftermath uh, with the Eurozone uh, crisis also. And then coming from nowhere, this uh, incredible uh, pandemic, which has basically uh, had as a consequence to stop more or less the global economy or half of the global economy at the same moment. So I think we are in a world where companies uh, need to be ready to face uh, the unexpected. And I think what is very important to go through that, even if you experience shocks, And to be resilient is really around, at the end of the day, the staff commitment and attachment to the company. And here you touch upon shared values, culture, the fact that people uh, will dedicate their full energy together to find solutions, pragmatic solutions. And it's true also for the dedication to the clients. We have experienced as a bank an extraordinary moment where we had to be there to support the clients, to give comfort to the clients. And it was, of course, something positive to nurture a feeling of being useful. Uh, You know, when people talk about uh, purpose, there's not a better moment to illustrate the purpose of a bank than in, in difficult times. And who knows when the next crisis will be? We are going to remain in a world of tensions, in a world of, uh, with, you know, ESG, the climate, uh, issues which can happen, geopolitical tensions. We have to be ready for the unexpected. And again, it's the deep values which are shared within the company, which will help them to survive and go through the bad moments. One last question. Um, what advice would you give to the 2050 SG CEO? Well, first, what strikes me, and you know, I've been now CEO for something like 13 years, is how more demanding the job has become. There are many sectors of the economy which are going through extraordinary transformation. On top of that, in the financial sector, it's a new game. It's the, the rules are different. The regulation is very demanding in many aspects. And then you have this fundamental transformation about digital, uh, the usage of digital technologies, and ESG, which will mean changing fundamentally business model. If I had to give some recommendations, more than ever, you, you have as a CEO to have a cocktail, a mix of confidence, which has to be fed by the feeling you are consistent with deep-rooted convictions, that you act according to your convictions, that you don't play a role, and at the same time of humility, because again, uh, you have as a CEO so much to learn. I'm learning every day. I have to train on digital technologies, but also now on ESG. So we need to have this humility. And sometimes it's much younger people at the lower level of hierarchy who knows better than you. And you have to accept that and take advantage of their presence to learn. And of course, let me just highlight that technology is something very important. Even before 2050, I think CEOs have to improve their understanding of what these new technologies can mean in the way of thinking about business, client uh, relationship, internal processes. So 
I would expect the new CEO to uh, remain humble, open uh, to learning, consistent with their personal convictions, and tech-savvy. Thank you, Frédéric. It's been a, a great pleasure having your insights and thoughts and um, looking forward to uh, catching up with you uh, in person sometime this year or next year. Thank you so much, Goku. To sum this up, let me reenact a scene from the movie Kung Fu Panda. And credit for this goes to my daughters who sat me down to watch the film. So here it goes. <clears throat> Kung Fu Panda finally asked his father, Mr. Ping, what is the secret sauce of your special and very popular noodle soup? Mr. Bing looks at Kung Fu Panda and says, The secret ingredient is nothing. You heard me, nothing. There is no secret ingredient. To make something special, you just need to believe it's special. Kung Fu Panda then opens the secret roll and sees his reflection. The moral of the story is that the secret sauce is himself and self-belief. As Eminem said in his song, Lose Yourself. You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors. And thanks to Fadia Kudea for sharing some useful insights with us. I hope this episode has helped you get a better glimpse of the future of finance. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave some stars on Apple Podcasts, leave comments anywhere you like, and spread the word. See you at the next episode. Whilst the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.